it's great for us to be together today. Um, the reason that um, I'm excited about the news that Dave Moore gave you is that we get to, Lord willing, create some more space to deal with hard texts like today. And uh, so this is, of all the passages in the New Testament, one of the most challenging. And uh, so on the one hand, we're going to clap for what God is doing. On the other hand, we're also going to be soberly reminded of um, the weight of what Scripture says to us. So it's my privilege to try and unpack one of the most challenging texts in all of the Bible today. This is uh, a great day uh, to be able to do that. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, um, we know you're present here among us. We know you're in this room. You're in worship too. You're working all over the world. There'll be people who will hear this message on um, a podcast, and we pray that you would use your word to cut us deep in the heart. We pray that um, your Holy Spirit would use the inspired text to help us to see ourselves, to see sin, to see you, to see your Son, to see the power of the Holy Spirit more clearly. Lord, help us in the next 40 minutes to have disciplined minds and hearts and to focus on this important matter so that we will know not only what the text says, but we'll know how to live because these are important words and we pray that our hearts will be ready to receive them. Give me help as I explain it and walk us through uh, the various um, contours of this issue. And I pray that at the end of the day, Lord Jesus, you would be supremely exalted. That Holy Spirit, you'd not be grieved. And that, Father, you'd receive much glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a day and an age of what I'll call do-overs and comebacks. You know what I mean by that? I mean that just about anybody can do just about anything and have a reasonable expectation that they're going to get a do-over or that they're going to be able to come back. Our, our culture knows very little of long-term consequences or irrevocable punishment. Whether it's sports, whether it's um, marriage, uh, whether it's business, whether it's education or even religion, we'd rather not think, let alone talk about, consequences that cannot and will not change. For example, most people in our culture believe in heaven, but fewer can even tolerate the concept of hell. You see, what's happened is that culturally the demise of absolute truth has birthed the end of absolute consequences. Our subject today is a sober one. We're talking about the one unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And uh, candidly, it's countercultural, even in the evangelical church, to talk about this subject. If we were going to err, don't get me wrong, I'd rather be on the side and would much rather talk about things like forgiveness and reconciliation and second chances and hope. And, and we, we talk about those things frequently. So if you're here today and it's the first time you've ever been at College Park, it's not always this heavy. <laughs> it's not always like this. But I need to remind all of us that hope and reconciliation is one side of a coin. There's another side about justice about long-term consequences. Parallel to passages that talk about hope are scary texts that are meant to warn us, meant to wake us up, meant to shock us, and help us feel things that we don't often feel, but 
We need to from time to time. Matthew 22, Matthew 12 rather, verses 22 to 32 is such a text. It is a sober text. And with it, I'd like to ask you this question. What would you do if you knew that there was one sin from which you could never, ever receive forgiveness? What would you think about that sin? How would you think about that sin? How would you think about this issue that if you cross the line, there would be no going back ever, no matter how much you begged or pleaded, no matter how hard you wanted to go back, that once you crossed the line, it was over. You see, today we're going to look at that issue, the, the one unforgivable sin, what the Bible calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And my attempt today will be to answer two questions for you. First, what is the unforgivable sin? What's it all about? And secondly, how should we live in light of it? In other words, what is it that's the problem here in the text? And then how do we apply this generally and then specifically to our lives? What is it that we need to feel as we leave today about the fact that this is in the Bible and that God has given it to us for some very specific reasons? So in in order to examine those two questions, you need to understand the broader context in which Jesus' hard statement here about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is made because it actually informs the conclusions that we draw. So I want to remind you that we're in the middle of a section called the Portraits of Jesus. Our journey through Matthew 11 and 12, we started the first of the year, took a break to look at the subject of generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And what we've seen in these chapters is a growing hostility. Jesus is painting a portrait of who he is, and the clearer he becomes about who he is, the the, the more angry the Pharisees become. They They look at the portrait of him, and they're like, we know the Messiah, and you're not it. He has rebuked, Jesus has rebuked the cities for their lack of response to his teaching. He's asserted his greatness over the temple, even claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. And the more he talks about his authority and the more he talks about who he is, the more frustrated the Pharisees become. And in fact, chapter 12 and verse 14 ends with a statement that the Pharisees from that point decided that they needed to figure out a way to destroy him. The context of where we are in our study today is that a demon-oppressed man is brought to Jesus. Verse 22 says that this man was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. We don't know how he healed him or what he did. That's not relevant, but rather it was the fact that Jesus healed this man, and his infirmities in terms of his inability to see and his inability to speak are so clear and so obvious that it's very apparent that he was healed. There's no question as to whether or not the man was healed by Jesus. text even says, so the man spoke and saw. Now the problem begins in verse 23, that the crowds, when they saw what Jesus did, the text says that all the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? Translated, can this be the Messiah? That little phrase, son of David, if you remember from our other studies in Matthew, is a clear inference to Jesus being the Messiah, the chosen one, the, the Christ, the one upon whom God's Spirit would rest, and then he would become 
the leader, so to speak, of Israel, although they didn't fully understand what that leadership would be. But they were waiting for this coming one, and this, this presents a problem, because Christ has clearly healed someone, and the crowd is clearly amazed at his power, and we have now a conflict with the Pharisees in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So the Pharisees are stuck. Clearly Jesus has healed somebody. I mean, it's, it's undeniable. The man was blind and he couldn't speak. And now Jesus healed him and he can speak and he can see. So you can't argue with the fact that he was healed. You can't say, well, it's a fake. It was clear he was healed. And you can't stop the crowds from being excited about him. They can't make it. No, 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 he's not the Messiah. No, no, he wasn't healed. No, they have to think of a third option. So they triangulate the problem and they suggest a third solution, which is that Jesus did indeed heal him, but he did this by the power of the devil. The word Beelzebul means Lord of the house, Prince of demons, Lord of heights, and it's used to describe supernatural powers or even the devil himself. So what's happening here is the Pharisees can't deny what's going on, so they attribute Jesus' healing power to none other than Satan. They observe a good deed and they ascribe it to the evil one. What they do is they willfully reject what should be obvious. He has power. And they reject who he is and then infer that his empowerment comes by the devil. This is a despicable solution that no doubt created a gasp in heaven. You can only imagine the scene. As this healing took place and the Pharisees said, the only way he does that miracle is by the power of Satan. And I can imagine all of heaven went, <gasps> I mean, they're thinking the next moment it's going to be Pharisee dust on the ground. God's going to just smoke these guys, right? Because, I mean, that, that, in terms of just treacherous statements, yeah, this is like a varsity treacherous statement right here. Um, to say that, that, that Jesus is empowered by the evil one. To think that human beings would dare to suggest that the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, was empowered by the Prince of Darkness? That's not just treasonous. That's a dangerous thing to say. Now, what Jesus does is he moves from kind of the exterior of the argument down to the core of the heart, and he proceeds to dismantle their charge in verses 25 to 30, he makes three statements and then a summary. Statement number one comes in verses 25 and 26, and Jesus indicates that their statement is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. How then will this kingdom stand? Jesus is dismantling their argument indicating that if Satan, verse 26, casts out Satan, then he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? In other words, it doesn't even make any sense that Satan would cast himself out. That's just illogical. The second thing that Jesus says in verse 27 is that their charge is inconsistent. Look at verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons or their disciples cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, if they're saying that Jesus cast out 
demons by the power of the devil than the Pharisees' disciples, who also had apparently power to cast out the devil and were involved in exorcisms of some kind. Then Jesus is saying, well, then your disciples are also empowered by the devil, and therefore your sons will judge you in that. So they're just being flat-out inconsistent. Verse 28 and 29, we see the third statement, and that is Jesus targets their defiance. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here now, Jesus is getting closer to the heart. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying here is the reason why these Pharisees won't acknowledge that he has the power to heal is because if they acknowledge that, then they would be giving ground to the fact that the kingdom of God was coming through him. And they won't acknowledge that the kingdom of God is coming through him. Therefore, they have to create this spurious charge against Jesus that he's somehow empowered by the devil and casting out demons. And then finally we come to our summary statement in verse 30 that leads into the text of the unforgivable sin and his summary statement is this, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. His summary statement is this, if you're you're not with Jesus, you're against him. You can't sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You can't be, well, sometimes I believe and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm with him, sometimes I'm not. Monday through Friday, I'm against him, but Sunday I'm all for him. You can't do that. Jesus is like, you're either for me or against me. In other words, the passivity of the Pharisees, of just kind of sitting back and saying, well, it's the devil that does it. That passivity, make no mistake about it, is active resistance. So Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who doesn't gather scatters. He uses a shepherd analogy here of sheep that are being trying to to round up into a corral of sorts and shepherds that are using their sticks to try and round these sheep up. And the idea is this, an image maybe say of three or four shepherds trying to work together with two of them sitting on the fence watching as the sheep are scattering and the two shepherds who are busy doing the work look at the two shepherds sitting on the fence and say, hey, would you get involved here and help us? Because you're sitting there and your inactivity is making things worse. We can't do this alone, and if you're sitting there, you're not helping us. And what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is by their sitting on the fence, they actually are creating the very scattering of the sheep. So what Jesus is is dismantling here is that there's no kind of split between uh, two opinions in regards to who Jesus is. You can't ride the fence. There aren't three buckets as it relates to one's view of Jesus. You're either for him or against him. There's no middle ground. The reason that's important is because this forms the context of all of what Jesus is saying. That that passivity is a deadly form of resistance. See, the Pharisees, to review, can't deny that there's a miracle that has happened. Instead, what they suggest, both illogically, inconsistently, and defiantly, is that Jesus is empowered not by the Spirit, but by the devil, and their charge is a serious, active resistance that appears to be passive. Now, Jesus takes this, and now he gets to the point, and Matthew records this story because of his desire to help us understand what it is here that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Or the unforgivable sin. Look at verse 31. Therefore I tell you. So 
what Jesus says next comes as a result of what we've just heard and learned. Again, that context is very important. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. You have to notice, we're going to look at three different passages here, that there is this tension that exists. On the one hand, in, in, in many of the passages, it says, all, every sin will be forgiven, and then it has this other category, this other sin, about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and you need to hold both of those in strong and equal footing and tension. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Here's another important phrase, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, the whole point of what, why Matthew has this paragraph here is for those two verses. And three other gospel writers record similar words about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 12 and verse 10. Luke condenses uh, Jesus' teaching into one verse and to one fairly simple and straightforward sentence. And so it's helpful to kind of just get the bullet point summary. And then we're going to go over to Mark chapter 3 and we'll see a really helpful cross-reference and some things that Mark adds to our understanding and discussion. Luke 12 and verse 10. says this, Luke 12, 10, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. All right, now go over to Mark chapter 3 and verse 28. Mark's summary is uh, exceptionally helpful, and there's some important, some important little phrases that you need to note in your... Um, examination of this issue as it relates to, to Mark's treatment of it. Mark 3 and verse 28. Notice again the, the tension between all sins except for this one. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So notice there the all-encompassing nature of it. That's a, a broad brush stroke. All sins will be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, here's a very important phrase, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So he never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So all of these passages teach the same thing. And here it is. While forgiveness is available for all sins, while there's a sweeping element of grace, according to these three passages, there is no forgiveness available for the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy is a word that comes from two words. It means to injure and to speak. So injurious speak or evil speaking. So whatever this is, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we've established that the unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but we haven't yet figured out, so what exactly is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It is some sort of evil speaking or vilification, if you will, that's specifically directed at the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's a number of things that we have to note here that provide fuller color on this issue. There's three. The first is that the overwhelming and normal disposition of God is to forgive sins through Christ from every person who genuinely repents. Again, hear the tone of the text, is that God's overwhelming and usual disposition is to forgive sins through Christ from every person who genuinely repents. That means today, no matter what you've done or how bad you've been, the overwhelming tone of the gospel is there's a wide open array of grace available to you through the person called Jesus. And the overwhelming tone is that there is a beautiful forgiveness offered in Christ. In fact, Matthew says, every sin and blasphemy. Mark says, all sins and whatsoever blasphemies they utter. This is important, lest somehow you think that there are arbitrary limits to God's grace, or as if God is powerless to forgive. God isn't powerless to forgive, but there's something about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that renders this sin to be now not forgiven. The second thing you need to notice is that there's a specific nature of this sin, and it's directed particularly towards the Holy Spirit. All three texts tell us that it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is different in terms of its consequences from all other sins, including even blasphemy against the Son of God. So it's one thing to blaspheme the Son of God, and the text says that will be forgiven, but to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that will not be forgiven. And we have examples of people who have blasphemed the name of Christ. Peter would be a prime example of that, who spoke ill of him at his crucifixion, or his his ramp up to the crucifixion in his trial, and then is restored and is forgiven. So even the worst heinous sins of blasphemy against Christ, those could be forgiven, but there's something different about the blaspheme or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the final thing is this. Third, whatever the sin against the Holy Spirit is, it is eternally serious. It is a sin, Luke 12:10, that will not be forgiven. It's a sin, according to Matthew 12, that regardless of time will not be forgiven. The text says, in this age or in the age to come. Mark 3 tells us it's an eternal sin, and therefore the person who commits this sin, according to Mark, never has forgiveness. So now that I've got you completely scared out of your mind, is okay, what is this thing? What is this all about? Let me give you some views as to what people have tended over church history to take this sin as and help you understand what they're not before I specifically tell you what it is. So tolerate the tension, if you will, a little longer. Some have taken this to mean a relapse into sin after a person receives Christ. In other words, some see this as a person receives Christ and then after a period of time they blaspheme the Holy Spirit and thereby they end up losing their salvation. The problem with that view is that there are way too many verses that clearly teach the eternal security or the perseverance of those who are genuinely converted So that doesn't jive with the rest of the tone of Scripture. Another view is that the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not forgivable in this lifetime, but it could be in the next, implying a purgatory-like purification that is needed in the next. So it's not forgivable now, but you could be purified from it after death. However, the Bible nowhere teaches a purgatory-like purification 
The simple fact is that Matthew says that this sin will not be forgiven in this lifetime or in the life to come. So whatever the sin is, it's committed in the present and it's immediately not forgiven and it's eternally not forgiven. Another view is to see the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as unbelief. Meaning that the one sin, this, this view would say, that, that really results in eternal judgment or non-forgiveness is simply not believing in Jesus. As long as that person doesn't repent of that before they die, then that sin of unbelief becomes the one unforgiven sin. And this gets closer to the mark, but it's still not convincing because the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has an immediate effect. And whatever it it happens, the consequences don't change. In other words, somebody could not believe in Jesus and then at their deathbed become convinced that He's the Lord and Savior and thereby be forgiven of their sins and even their sin of unbelief and be converted. But the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that never happens. The person, once they cross the line, they can never go back. So I don't think that unbelief is what Jesus is talking about. It gets closer but I still don't think that's what the target is. So what is it? Here's a helpful definition. The unforgivable sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that He withdraws forever His convicting power so that one is never able to repent and be forgiven. Let me read that again. It's an act of resistance that belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously, the Holy Spirit's a person, and by the individual, the human being's resistance to the Holy Spirit, it's so grievous that he withdraws forever his convicting power so that one is never able to repent and never then forgiven. In other words, it is not that Christ's death is insufficient for this sin. The fact that there would be one unforgivable sin doesn't say anything negative about the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. But it's the fact of this, that the person who commits this sin is beyond repentance and they're beyond forgiveness because of the active withdrawing of the Holy Spirit's power for that person to be convicted. According to the story... The qualifications for this sin would be first a person who sees a clear demonstration of the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. They they, they see that Christ is Lord. They see the power. They see the reality. Secondly, that there is a clear rejection of who Christ is despite the overwhelming and clear evidence. They simply say no and they even say other things must be in play here. This cannot be real. Even though everything in front of them would point to the authority and the reality of Christ. And third, there is such hardness of heart that sets in that the reality is there is nothing new to learn, to see, or believe. And because of that, the hardness of their heart puts them beyond repentance because the movement of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction is not a human right. Conviction, friends, is not something you deserve or something you create. Conviction of sin, hear me, is a gift from God. 
And to think that you could just muster up conviction in yourself is to misunderstand sin, God, and the Holy Spirit. So what is it that makes this person beyond the reach of repentance? The answer to that is directly connected to the role of the Holy Spirit. And that's why this sin against the Holy Spirit is different than the sin against Jesus. The Holy Spirit plays a very critical role in bringing people to salvation. It is the Holy Spirit who opens people's eyes. They, they hear the content of the gospel. Their spiritual eyes are open and they see the kingdom. They see the cross. They see forgiveness. And they have spiritual empowerment that didn't come from them. It is the Spirit of God who creates that. John 3, 6, the flesh bursts the flesh, but everything born by the Spirit is by the Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No man says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. So even the statement, Jesus is Lord, I believe in Jesus, that empowerment is comes from and is central to the Holy Spirit's role. It's the Holy Spirit that grants repentance. It's the Holy Spirit that convinces people of sin. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals Christ as Lord. So while the Father planned redemption, while the Son accomplished redemption, it's the Holy Spirit who empowers redemption in the hearts of of people. So salvation doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit. Therefore, To taste and to see the power of the Holy Spirit. To see the full disclosure of Christ. And then to reject the Spirit's work as nothing more than demonic influence would be to remove oneself from the only one who can bring repentance, that being the Holy Spirit. In the same way that Christ is the only means of salvation, the Spirit is the only means of repentance. And to so speak ill of the Spirit's work and equate that to demonic influence, eventually, and who knows when that is, a person crosses a divinely ordained line, and when that line is crossed, the Spirit of the living God moves up, and conviction no longer happens. Repentance cannot take place. Forgiveness is impossible. Why? Because there's no conviction and there's no repentance. The hardness of the heart sets in fully and permanently. Again, back to our definition, an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever his convicting power so that one is never able to repent and be forgiven. See, it's not just that they're not able to repent, it is that the Holy Spirit withdraws his conviction such that they never will repent. And they could say all day long, I'll change later on. I'll just deal with what I want to deal with right now. And later on in my latter part of my life, then I'll be convicted and then I'll turn. And what they do is presume upon the conviction of God. And when they come to the point when they think they'll actually repent, that day will never come. There'll be no desire, no effort, no inkling, no motivation, nothing. Their heart will be dead as stone. It'll be hard as a rock. And the Holy Spirit will be grieved. That is why the sin toward the Holy Spirit is the one unforgivable sin. If there's no conviction, then there's no repentance. And if there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. 
to maybe help you understand how significant this is or what this would kind of look like, let me give you an illustration. Imagine a man who grows up outside of the suburban life that we all know here. He grows up on a farm, and his father and, and, and grandfather all lived on the same property. In the backyard, they had a hand pump that drew water up from the earth. And you pump the well, and the water would come out. And this man grew up in a home, in an environment, and in a culture where real water that was used to, to water lawns came from the earth, from 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 a, a well that you pumped. And so, as a child, he would pump the water, put it into a bucket, and then water the lawn. This is the way that life is, so he thinks. So he moves eventually into suburban setting and notices in his backyard there is no such hand pump that he's been used to doesn't really even know how to water his lawn. He begins to see his neighbors have green and lush grass as the summer begins to come upon us. He, upon him, he realizes that his grass is getting darker, getting brown, starting to die, and so he's looking for a way to water his grass, but yet there's no hand pump. So he looks all over to find a hand pump, begins researching how he can dig a well in his backyard so he can get the water that he needs to water his grass, and eventually goes up to his neighbors in frustration and says, look, my yard is is, is dying and yours is green and lush. How are you doing this? And they say, well, we water it. Ah, water it. Where do you get your water from? So, well, you get the water from the spigot in the side of his house. He said, what are you talking about? A spigot at the side of the house. So he walks him over to his own house, shows him this spigot, hooks up a hose to it, turns it on, and outflows this cool water. And the man who'd never seen this looks at it and is amazed at this invention. And yet something in him says, no, this isn't the right way. This is, this is wrong. If God wanted water to come on the earth, he would bring it up from the earth, not from out of the side of a house. And in his mind, he thinks this is preposterous. And so he refuses to use it. The neighbor closes it up, unhooks the hose, walks away, and, and the man continues to look for a water pump that he can somehow install in his backyard. And June, July, August all go, and his yard by now is completely dead. And his wife says to him, why won't you just use the spigot and the hose? And he says, no, hand-pumped water is better. And finally, as she pleads with him, he relents and says, okay, you know what, just so you stop bothering me, fine. I'll go ahead and use the silly spigot on the side of the house. And as he goes over to grab the spigot, he tries to turn it on. And as he tries to turn it, it's absolutely jammed. That time, rust, and the hardness of his heart colluded together. And now he's unable to have the kind of water that he could have had before because... Time and the hardness of his heart had colluded together to break him off from the very thing that could have helped him. Or let me make it worse. Imagine that he's still in the hardness of his heart, says to his wife, I don't care what that spigot is, and I don't care what the neighbors get from it, and I don't care what kind of water comes from it. I'm not using that spigot. This is the kind of water that I want, and if I can't have this water, I won't have any water at all. And the tragedy, the irony, the arrogance, the, the, the utter stupidity of this man's heart over water and a spigot paints, I think, in clear relief the reality of what goes on inside of the heart of a man or a woman in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary about who Christ is still chooses to say, no, that's, that's not empowerment from God, that's, that's, that's something else. So the question then is how do we live in light of this? 
This is a really important question because, after all, Matthew tells us this teaching of Jesus for some very specific reasons. And there are three words that capture what I want us to do this morning. The first word would be the word gasp. And and my hope is that as you hear that definition, perhaps as you hear the illustration, or even as we just read the text, that there'd be something within you that you would just go... Or a a shuddering, so to speak. When I was writing this sermon, in a couple moments while I was actually typing, I found my hands, I pulled them away from the computer, and they literally were trembling. Because I think that if you don't read this warning and grasp the sober reality of what it means, you don't fully understand it. It's really important to feel the weight that Jesus is issuing a warning that is intended to create a spiritual gasp. It's meant to shock And as a dad, I I know this. My children, when they are disobedient, every once in a while, when I've reached kind of the threshold of, you know what, here's here's the deal, fellas, listen to this. If you continue acting this way and treating one another like this, you know what's going to happen? You're never going to learn how to resolve conflict. Eventually, you're going to get angry at someone. You're going to do something you regret. And you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. (laughs) Now, I don't think that they're really going to do that. But I'm trying to wake them up to the reality of this is how it happens. Don't run out in the road, you'll get hit by a car. I don't think it'll ever happen, but I warn them because I want the shock and the gasp to happen. I think if you feel this text correctly, then there ought to be a sense within your heart that says, whoa, realizing that it is no small thing that there is a sin that a person could commit from which there would be no return. That is a nightmare, but it's not a dream, beloved. This is real. There are people who have done this. It should cause us to gasp as well because Jesus says this not to people who are horrible, wicked, worldly sinners. He says this to spiritual people. This is a warning for people who are near spiritual things, for people who see spiritual things. They're even part of spiritual things. It's spiritual people who commit this sin. It's the spiritual crowd. It's the proud crowd who most often rejected Jesus. So the profile of the person who commits the sin is a person with lots of religious lingo, with lots of religious background, with lots of religious knowledge, and that's the problem. He or she knows so much that he or she is the last person to know they've grieved the Holy Spirit. And that ought to take your breath away. It ought to cause us to go, Oh God, help us. The next word is grapple. So did the Pharisees actually commit this sin? I don't know. Jesus doesn't say that they committed this sin. He warns them about this sin. Jesus never says if they did or not. But he warns them, and Matthew tells us about this sin. So we need to grapple with the reality of this sin being in a part of God's overall picture of redemption and forgiveness and consequence of sin. Let me be clear, I don't think that a true converted follower of Jesus can commit this sin. I think that once a person receives Christ and is indwelt by the Spirit, there's there's no, you're permanently born, you are adopted, you are God's child. I don't think this is a sin that a follower of Jesus can commit. But I also think that if you get what's going on here as a follower of Jesus, it should at a minimum leave you with a level of heart searching and a healthy sense of fear as to how bad sin really is. 
Just because a true believer couldn't commit this sin doesn't mean that this warning here shouldn't be heard by believers and we ought to hear to a lesser extent the warning about the deceitfulness of sin and lesser degrees of hardening. The fact that this is in play ought to make us realize, whoa, sin is a really big deal. And we ought to be warned about the deceitfulness of sin that create a hardening of heart and have this be a motivation for all of us to take sin seriously. Sometimes we have a weird view of sin. I can just simply ask forgiveness for it. I can just simply confess it and have it be over. And yet adding the fact that there's one sin in the Bible that there is no forgiveness for, I think wakes us up to the reality that forgiveness has not always been the way that God has dealt with His created order. The hymn writer says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. This is, I think, a good balance. That we understand how prone our hearts can be to the deceitfulness of sin and yet have supreme confidence in God's ability to seal it. We ought to have this continual reminder that the hardness of the heart is a scary reality in a significant way for someone who is guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but in another way for anyone who gets captured by the deceitfulness of sin. And our prayer ought to be, God, my heart could wander, so take and seal it. We ought to hear this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing and tremble that this is how serious sin can be. And yet at the same time take great comfort in the hope that God's sealing and His adoption of you is irrevocable as well. Or as Louis Burkhoff says, we may be reasonably sure that those who fear they have committed this sin and worry about this and pray for, and desire for the prayers of others have indeed not committed it. So who's the person I'm most concerned about today in this room? I'm most concerned about the person who says, bah! That's just a hellfire and brimstone sermon. That, that's, that didn't even apply to me anyways. Who cares about that? That's for people who are lost. That's for people who are going to blast in the Holy Spirit. I've never done that. I will never do that. You're the one who needs to listen. It's the person who says, oh my, who feels within their gut this sense of fear and trepidation of, that is a serious deal. That's the person who's hearing the mercy of this passage. The final word is the word glory. In the midst of a do-over and comeback culture, this teaching reminds us all about the dire consequences of sin. This is a sober reminder that sin, beloved, is a big deal. We laugh at sin, we joke at sin, we make sitcoms about sin, we, we, we write about sin, we read about sin, and this is a reminder, sin is a big deal. Forgiveness through the cross was not the normal way that God dealt with sin in His universe. The normal way prior to the Eden event and prior to the cross event, when the angels fell with Lucifer, there was only irrevocable punishment. There was no redemption. So the glory of this is to realize that God has been unbelievably and unusually merciful in providing redemption for rebellious creatures. Because the way He dealt with creatures before, it's not the way He has dealt with us. 
Therefore, this passage should cause you to tremble, to think, but it should cause you to bask in the glory of redemption. For you to thank God that by His Spirit your eyes were opened to see the full reality of who Jesus really is. For you to be able to marvel at the fact that God conquered your heart and to rejoice in the fact that you were once dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And what God did is He made you alive together with Christ and it's by grace that you have been saved. And it is that if this very moment you feel the weight of conviction and the drawing of God's Spirit, you ought not wait to confess or to come to Christ because there is no guarantee that that conviction will remain for the rest of your lifetime. Do not let the goodness and the mercy of God be something that you presume upon. And if you have received that mercy, oh, that you would rejoice in a God who loves us so so much that he would be gracious to us in this way. So, beloved, may God help us to grasp and grapple and glory in this hard teaching because it shows us all the more clearly the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank God that he has mercifully redeemed our wicked, sinful, hardened hearts. Father in heaven, the prospect of a unforgivable sin creates a fearful and foreboding reality that we all must deal with today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take sin seriously. I pray that you would perhaps even begin to soften the heart today, Lord, of a man or a woman who's been hardened against you maybe God to open the eyes today of somebody who has all of the answers but none of the fruit they got all the right stuff but they got nothing that is born of the spirit and today that Lord you would reveal in their hearts the the, the passive resistance the, the, the passive rebellion the veneer the fakeness before before a hardening sets in Oh God, we pray that, Stephen, in the quietness of this moment, you would deal with our hearts as only you can. Church family, I invite you just even while Lori plays, as we conclude, that a moment of reflection for all of us would be helpful. This is serious work. It's a serious word. Is your heart hardened? Do you know Christ? Do you think that somehow you're going to turn later on in life? Do you take sin as seriously as what it it needs to be? Or are you playing and dabbling with stuff not only for which Christ died, but things that before the cross and before Genesis 1-1, any rebellion was irrevocable punishment. This is serious rebellion. Father, I pray that you would do your work by your Holy Spirit in us. And we pray this because we are a needy people and we are too often self-deceived. 
Now listen, before I send you out, just stay in an attitude of prayer. Before I send you out, there's going to be some prayer folks up here, some counselors, if you need to talk with someone, if you need to pray with someone. If you today are feeling the weight of just conviction of what God is doing, or maybe just a reminder about your own need of your sin, don't, don't wait. Please don't wait. Coming and talking to a counselor is not going to be the end-all solution. Not resisting the Spirit, that's, that's the beginning. So, Father Heaven, I pray that you would empower action from today's message. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.